welcome to the Board Game Gambit Podcast, Season 3, Episode 3, Tis the Season, Gift Giving and Board Games, Do's and Don'ts, and anything we want to talk about. So, joining you as always is me, Nathan. And I'm Jackie. Hello everyone, happy holiday season. And for today's review, we are going to be discussing Endless Winter. Which is appropriate because this morning uh, Ireland decided to give me a taste of New England winter. It was super, <laughs> I mean, I don't know the temperature was as low, but with the humidity and the wind and the frost all around, it was a tough day to be out. So mm. um, no, no snow though. So not really, really um, North American winter, but it's getting cold here as well, which is perfect for gaming weather i guess um but <laughs> yes so what have you been up to recently well uh we are in the process of moving again this time not countries but uh place so finally in theory next thursday so f- uh, five days from now i should finally be in possession of our games again which is a great <laughs> moment um we're going to open them all, check that they didn't get ruined. Um, everything is insured, but obviously I don't want my games to be ruined because I'm, I care for them. And yes. replacing them is not the same as 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 having them originally, um, which means that I will go back to having a wide choice of what to play, which has been not the case for the last nine months. But recently we have been meeting people through not so much like meetups or something like that, but we got in contact with people locally that we met at the loca- at the convention. And so our friend Mike invited us over a few a few times and we, so we have started to know the Cork Cork Korean? I, I have no idea how you say it. The people in Cork that play board games. <laughs> Corkian. Uh, so yeah, we have we have been um we have been slowly making our in-way in knowing uh, people, and that's nice. Um, and as you know, to me, it's it, board games are are a, are a way to know people to play board games with as well. Is but I, I really do care to find uh, people that I like playing with, and not just that can feel a seat at the table. And so that has been very nice. Yes, that's that's good. Um, do you have anything? So I know Board Game Geek, the website, has like a gamers in your area kind of function. Do you guys have anything like that that you use elsewhere? So in the past, I've used a little bit of that. That was how we met the first people in Rhode Island. Here, I was waiting for knowing exactly where we would be living to post basically on BJG and say, is anyone in the area? But then we went to uh, we went to a convention and we met some people that were from from the area and so they they invited us over. So I don't know, for now I don't need to expand even more. But usually that's that has been my way to do it because it's a little more um more personal than just seeing that there is an event and going, someone has to answer you, but it's a little less invasive than checking on BGG and writing to one person, I see that you live near me, what, what's around, which which I did in the past. Um, mm. But so uh, usually it's it's a good way to, to find people because obviously 
it's not that only the people on BGG play the games that we like, but if they are on BGG, they do play the kind of games that we like, which is right. better than trying it. Because often board gaming groups, for example, there is a board gaming group at the university and we went once and I think one of them plays the kind of games that we intend when we mean board games. Um, everyone else is more into party games and things like that. So it was nice. There's to nothing go. wrong with that, but yeah, exactly. It was very nice to be there, but it's a very different activity, right? It's, it's, it was a nice Friday, but is not, not someone that I would spring, uh, I don't know, a salt skin on because that would be not good for anyone. So, um, I mean, you that. could. Uh, oh, I could. Yeah, I legally could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I've, um, when we first moved to Cape Cod, uh, we looked into, and I think I've talked about this on here, we looked into like that kind of stuff. Like, are there people in the area that are into gaming or whatever? And we, I found somebody. And they were like, they referred me to a group. And so I, I got in with the group and I've gone to the, to that a few times. Um, but the one person who responded to me was also like, oh, we're going to be playing games on New Year's. And we had just moved here in like November. And he was like, oh, we're going to be playing games on New Year's. And Scott was terrified because, <laughs> so I'd never met these people before. And, and oh yeah, it was in the woods. It was on, in this like dirt road, like one way that like if someone came the other direction, you would have to like veer off. So it was very not in an area we were familiar with to someone's house that we had never met before for New Year's. And basically, push your luck game. If it goes well, <laughs> you spend the New Year's playing board games. If it goes well, bad, you get grisly murdered in the woods so it's, you it's know poor. a different kind of game but yeah yeah <laughs> so um but yeah no we hung out and we had fun and yeah so that was it, it's interesting to me to see how you know that that is still kind of an issue to like find like people in this hobby you know it's hard to find people that are into like euros or hard to find if you're not in like a convention setting or in a very populated city it's there's still not a lot of you know really good resources out there for people to use for me it's also it's a little delicate because i don't want to be rude uh, as you know i like conventions but on a regular playing base, I much, much, much rather uh, prefer playing with someone, with a group of someone, rather than simply going to an event and playing with whoever is there on a week-to-week basis, etc. But so that also means that sometimes I end up going to events only as long as I get to know someone and then I don't go to the event anymore. And I feel kind of bad for the organizers. So mm. it's very nice when I can kind of bypass that and get to know people directly. Yeah. Um, how was your your Thanksgiving? Did you get any gaming uh, in? Of course. Dan came down. So, of course, we did 
this was the first year we didn't even like consider going like shopping this year because nothing's really open on on Cape Cod. So mm-hmm. at this time of year, especially. So we just played games the whole time he was here. Uh, we played the the um, the trio of games that I talked about last time, the Cascadia, Calico, Verdant, because he'd never played those. Um, we also played Sobek two players. Oh, have you played uh, that? I have only played and only online the multiplayer version of Sobek. So how does it work in two? So in two players, um, there's an ankh and it points in two directions and you can take a tile from the directions that it's pointing. If you take the first ones, you just take the tile into your hand. If you take one, like if you skip over a tile, you have to add it to your corruption pile. At the end, whoever has more corruption um, in their pile, the other person who's less corrupt would get a Sobek. Or, um, <laughs> I don't call them correct. I think uh, I call them pierogi coins, <laughs> but I, I don't think that's what they're actually called. They don't um, sound Egyptian. <laughs> no, it does not sound Egyptian at all. Um, it sounds like a Polish treat, but... Uh, yeah, it's, it's, there's some kind of coins and they're worth points. So, uh, for each three tiles, you have less than the other person, they get another coin. So, um, you have to balance like how corrupt you want to be, um, and watch the other person and you're trying to sell goods and the, the sets at the end are worth how many tiles there are times the number of scarabs on the tiles. Okay, so it's a set collection still. Yeah. Okay, so they move from cards to tiles. The the so again, I only played the digital version, but the Sobek, the original game was set collection. You would choose cards. I don't remember exactly the style, but there was a similar thing that if you wanted certain cards, you had to skip others and get corruption. So the idea was was the same. It has been a trend to take popular games and make them into two player versions. Obviously, Seven Wonders Duel is, yep. I think, the first one that really broke too. But then you had, uh, there has been recently Splendor. It was a big thing at Essen. Um, I'm Do not you a big... play Splendor two players no. ever? No, I don't play Splendor at all. I I played it. <laughs> I didn't mind it. I didn't mind it. It was not a game that I disliked. But sure. I played it, I think, what, three, four times and never felt the the interest or need to play it again because you kind of do same the same thing which mm-hmm. is like its strength right it's for people who like i don't know it's like playing a card game when you play hearts you do exactly the same thing every time you play so for some people that familiarity is the good of the game uh for me if i have to play one of those you do kind of the same every game i rather play ticket to ride for me they are in the same category and i've I'm never played play. ticket to ride Oh, interesting. Um, it's it's simple, but I do like it. Yeah, I skipped over all of the intro games. The intro to, like, not mass-marketed games, I skipped over all of them. Ticket to Ride, um, Settlers of Catan. Like, I haven't played any of those, like, intro to... 
And on that day of October, Nathan stopped playing the game of life and sorry and started on On Mars and <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, for us, it has been, we, we did a little bit of Thanksgiving here with, with my sister. She knew that we, we cared about it. And so she, she made, actually, she had never done uh, Thanksgiving ever because it's not a European thing. Um, mm-hmm. And so she asked me for what, what's Thanksgiving food. And so I sent her a generic list, but I didn't check it. I just Googled. And she went really into it and she did pastries with caramelized onions and uh, mixed cheese and something else dip and uh, the the turkey and the potato casserole. It was a very good and three kind of pies and brownies. And it was oh my an intense um, Thanksgiving dinner for basically the three of us and the two kids. <laughs> but she, she, likes, she likes baking, she likes cooking, so it was very nice. Um, and we didn't play anything. But after... The, the week after, I was supposed to run a marathon. The marathon disappeared and became an half marathon. And mm-hmm. so uh, that meant, though, that I wasn't completely destroyed. And so we were able to attend a, a small convention in in Kildare, a place near Dublin. And there we did play a couple of new things. Um, one is a very old game, but new to, to us. It's a Nizia game, The Tower of Babel. Uh, have you seen it? Mm-mm. So the game is extremely simple. It's one of those that you, ha- you have to admire, I think, how the game becomes interesting with such simple rules. But I think I'd rather go a little bit further and get a little bit more complexity. It's basically on your turn, you either draw a card or try to build something. And the general idea is you cannot build, usually you cannot build things alone so other people can offer you cards and you choose whose contributions to take and depending on how you use them they get points or they get set collection or you get set collection and you're basically moving through that it was interesting i'm happy i played it i enjoyed my playing of it i wouldn't probably playing it again the big discovery i don't know if you have played this it's a game that i had guiltily skipped because I thought it would have been a mess, gave, given the weird theme and the, the imagery of it. But the mind management, the psychic espionage game, have you seen it? I have it not was, played that. It was big, not this past Gen Con, which I didn't do, the, the one before. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's inspired by a comic book that I never, not only read, I'd never seen. And it's very, very weird that he embraces that very much. So everything looks very strange. But the game is instead very clean. It's a secret movement game. It's a one versus many, but it's like Spectre Ops. I think three players, I really like playing it at three players. I could see playing it with two. I would probably not play it with many more. But there is one secret mover and then four characters basically that chase him um it it has a lot of details that when you are looking at it and even when the explanation starts make it look very cumbersome but it's not because it's it has an interesting way of giving you information um and it's one of those games where oh i can do this action to scout and know that they might have passed that that box on turn three so where they could be now it takes 40 minutes but it's a giant box so when you look at it you think oh this is gonna be forever and 
it was very interesting. It's now definitely on our list to get. For me, it doesn't go, um, it doesn't overcome Spectre Ops, but it must be said that Spectre Ops is one of my favorite games. So that's that's a very high bar. So do you think that you need to own Spectre Ops and Mind Management? I think I want them. Uh, I want them both. Yeah. But I really do like that that style of game. Mm-hmm. Um, we have played Spectre Ops a lot. I think Spectre Ops, I tend to play it just like simply meaning 1v1. I always want to play it 1v1. Uh, with two, therefore, with two characters, uh, so there is not much discussion. Is you trying to bluff the other player, or the, you trying to guess what the other player is doing? This one has more elements of deduction rather than trying to figure out what you did, and so I prefer this with more players because it was very nice to discuss. Okay, I think you could have done this or this, and the other player goes, "No, but we know that on turn five he had not done this and that. So this this clue, for example, you get clues. I passed, I didn't pass any fountain. And so you go, oh, by turn five, he hadn't passed any fountain. So because he has to move orthogonally and cannot double cross, is like snake, the old... Okay, old yeah. Cannot ever cross his own path. Uh, you know that by turn five, he could not have been there. And so you start doing a process of elimination. So it's a different game um but it was i wasn't expecting to to play it i must say that i i agreed to play it because i had already done my um shameful thing of going oh yes we can play whatever you want but not that not that not that not that not that (laughs) the 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 guy we played with dave who was nice enough to to teach us um, suggested this. I said, yeah, this is going to be at least fine. And actually, we both really, really liked it. Good. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen this, and it, you're right. It does look very odd, very peculiar. I still um, think that for me, um, it wasn't unpleasant. Like there is nothing gruesome. There is nothing offensive. It, it was fine. I still think, and I, it might be very f- faithful to the comic book, I don't think that the theme does a great service to the game. It's okay. so strange that it's, it distracts a little bit. It's interesting to, when you focus on a single element, but the entirety of the thing, it's a little overwrought. Um, I think if it had, had a simpler theme, it's basically a theme of secret agents and some other counter agent trying to stop them. But instead of being, I don't know, the Russian being chased by the FBI is the mind, the recruiter that goes around with the mystic monks and being stopped by interacting with the Zen garden. So it's all of these mental references, Hmm. which I guess in the comic book must be very interesting, very surreal. In the game, it's it sounds a little weird. Yeah, like there is a fountain, but it's not a fountain. It is a, a source of mystical something. And there are five people walking, and they're not just passerbys, but they are meditation monks or something like that. But it feels a little overplayed. Okay. But again, for people who like the, the theme, I guess that that's a plus. Hmm. Maybe you'll have to read one of the comics and then see how you feel about it then 
yeah, it does sound an interesting comic. Uh, mm. What else have I played? We played, we literally just played straight through. Um, I think at like three in the morning, we started a game of underwater cities. You know, the thing you normally start at three. Yeah, well, it's it's such a light game that doesn't need so any, light. any fresh. <laughs> so <story>. quick. <laughs> Uh, but to be fair, we did start with a quick start, so that took a whole round out. And then played it before? <laughs> yes, it's one of Dan's favorite games. Um, after he played my copy one year, he decided that he was going to also uh, deluxify his version. So he's also gone very heavy, very heavy-handed into the deluxification of his version. Are you interested in Woodcraft? Is new game? Uh, yes, but it's sold game. out everywhere. Yep. Um, what else did we play? Um, oh yeah, just yesterday night. Besides some old favorite, like Small World, which I always like introducing to people because I think it's a very interesting game. But we play Coco Pelli, which I also see on your on your shelf. <laughs> yes. I hadn't bought it, uh, and then I saw it at Essen for relatively cheap, and it had acrylic standees or something yep. like that, so we had to own it. And so we had this auto- autograph by by Fell um, copy, and I wasn't expecting such a fast game. So Coco Pelli, for those who haven't seen it, it's a Stefan Fell game that doesn't feel at all, I think, like a Stefan Fell game. No, <laughs> it, I agree. You have a deck. You have a deck of cards that is the same for every player and it changes slightly every game. Basically, you have three copies of 10 of 16 suits. So you have a different combination of suits every game, but every player has the same deck. You shuffle it up, draw five cards, and on your turn, you can basically play cards in front of you or on certain sections of your neighbor's board and you're trying to build sequence of cards of the same suit and there are wilds. And if you do four, you score. And if it's in front of someone, they score a little bit less. Um, but the interesting thing is that while these things are placed but not scored yet, they provide that player with special powers that can do a little bit of everything. Uh, you can play in sections where you couldn't play normally. You, When you play a card on someone else, you draw another card. When you draw a card, you can place it immediately and so forth and so on. Or they influence how you score points. And so you're constantly trying to balance not giving other players points, but also trying to cut out their avenues of, of special powers. I think it's not necessarily on the light side because of the rules, but it's on the light side because it's deck dependent. So you have to go... For example, I was very lucky. I built an engine that worked very well. But it was our first game. I think it was more things came out at the right time. But the game took with four players who none had played before, including explanation, we were done in 50 minutes, I think, or 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. So I can definitely stomach a little bit of sometimes the deck will be in your favor in a game that is that long. Mm-hmm. Played it? I have played it. Um, I've, I think I've only played it with two, though. Which I didn't actually care for. It has a weird variant for two players. So, and I didn't really care for it. So, it's been on my shelf for a while, unplayed since then, because 
I want to play it with more people because it just seems like a better game with more people. It seems more clear-cut. It seems like it would be more strategy without adding like additional rules. So it feels like it would just be better. Yeah, I would strongly suggest playing it with more. Again, I have not played it with two, but by reading the rules, that's one. Again, we bought it in Essen and it's one of the few games we have. So, and I purposely decided not to play it until we could play with more because I think it changes drastically because one of the big moments of tensions in the game is do I help this player here but I get points therefore we're both gaining on the third and fourth player or do I try to make it so I'm the one gaining the, the big part and I'm gaining on everyone but it's a little more tricky and all of that obviously disappears in two players because if I'm giving you points I basically take them directly away from me um, right. so there is a certain degree of okay I can afford to give points to green because green is not doing as well white blue I need to cut off is avenues for points because it's not doing is doing better and all of that would not be there with two I think that's the main I mean, because that's that's the essence of the game. You have to decide to help other players do their own things to cut out some of the things they can do. But if it's just two players, it means that you can only work on either yourself or that player. And that, that would be limiting. Anything else? I have one last thing, but do you have anything else that you wanted to, to mention? Uh, I'm just going to run through all the games that we played because it's it's ahead, exa- an exhaustive will... list. And you can just say yay or boo. <laughs> okay. Uh, we played Ark Nova. We played Federation, Golem, Tapestry, Kingsburg, The Castles of Burgundy, Lords of Seedit, First Rat, Wonderland's War, Four Humors, Bora Bora, Biblios, Twilight Inscription, Tekenu, Abandon All Artichokes, and Catherine. So three comments. I will make just three comments. <laughs> First, um, I really want to play for Threat, so that uh, you mentioned it already, but so that we can then discuss it together. Um, two, I'm surprised that you're still playing for humors. Um, and third, what is Catherine? Catherine, the cities of the Serena. That I have not even heard of. It plays really quick. Um, I was drawn to it because it's multi-use cards, kind of. So so you have a hand of cards. You have a row of cards. And you choose one card to play into your top row of cards and one to play below your cards. Then you flip them over. Everyone flips them over at the same time. If the cards match color-wise, you get to activate them. Uh, and then there's like interim scoring and there's a track and then you build houses out. Like there's a lot of little tiny components, but it's, it's pretty straightforward and simple to play. Um, I, I don't know. I, I like it. It's not very, like I said, it's not very complex, but it does have some moments of strategy. It is a little more luck based. I'll say than I than I thought it would be because there's you're drawing you're all drawing from one deck of cards, but you still have some options as far as like building an engine and building 
um, different things that you're doing, like focusing on certain things. So, yeah, it's strange that on BGG, I, I saw that it has a very uh, low score, and I opened the score that is strictly based on the theme. Uh, some people thought that is untastefully un connected to the, the current situation of Russian expansionism. Uh, I mm. must say that is, is tricky, right? Because then you shouldn't play anything with Germany until the late 20th century. I mean, this is set in, in much earlier times. So I'm, I'm a little weirded out by that. But um, yeah, it looks like a, it looks like an old style euro basically yeah yeah i i think that's what drew it to me because it it's just very like make your longest connection and then you score points based on your longest connection at the end of the game and you score um during interim scoring you score different components and if you have more cannons than your neighbors you get points and if you have more books then you get to put a, out a city for free and so there's a lot of little different things to consider and um like i played it just one v1 with dan and um we both took very different strategies and our scores came out pretty pretty close it, it was a very tight game we had no idea who was going to win yeah uh, and it looks that, i mean that's what what makes i think old style euros very neat uh it looks Again, I have not played it, but from from the components, it looks like it should be relatively easy to to explain, and then it would be maybe a little more complicated to think what to do. Yes. Uh, yeah, because all of the components are very straightforward, but I see that there are a lot of things that it seems you can do. On the in a way other end of the spectrum, um, meaning a, a very modern approach to simple euros. I played Flamecraft, mm, mm -hmm. which is we we kickstarted it based on cuteness. Uh, I know that it's a game that I will be able to play with people who are not into particularly heavy games, and that's very cute. Um, and it, on that, it delivered, and I think it felt exactly what I expected it to be. It's good enough that I don't regret getting it. I don't think it's just aesthetics. But I do think that the the very warm um, welcome that you received, it's based mostly on aesthetics. It's it's a fine game. It's maybe a little bit more than what we were mentioning before, a Splendor a Ticket to Ride, but not by much. It's a very simple game. On your turn, you place one of your cards, but there are six types of cards in the game and which are extremely straightforward. You place them in one of the locations on the board, you get some resources or you get some bonuses and you're trying to collect a certain amount of resources to complete contracts. That's all there is. This said, it plays fast. The iconography is extremely clear. It provides some interesting choices. And not only it plays fast in uh, lengthwise, but also your turn is you have two options on your turn and you go through the little three steps of each option, whatever you choose. It makes sense very quickly. The fact that the cards are just six types also means that you don't have to spend a lot of time reading all of the cards that you have in hand. You either have 
a dragon that can go there or a dragon that can go here. <laughs> and so it was it was pleasant. We have only played it once. It worked with two, which also I was skeptical about, but it worked and it was a very much back and forth. Um, I'm eager to try it with four or five, but it was I'm I'm happier than I expected to be. Um, I was expecting it to be a game that we would never have wanted to play just the two of us or with people with whom we could play uh, more complex games. Mm-hmm. While it's still not the game that I would build a gaming night around, but I'm definitely going to keep it and play it again. That's good. Speaking of new games that are, I mean, they're not that new anymore, but they're new to me because it took forever to get to Europe. Um, why don't we move to our review of Endless Winter? Sure. Endless Winter. Paleo-Americans. Uh, from Fantasia Games and designer Stan uh, Kordonsky. Notice how smooth I was in letting you. I know. <laughs> that was evil. Um, an artist... Um, isn't he, he goes by something else, isn't it? The Miko, the Miko, the Miko, yeah. Um, because his name is there, but it's also difficult. Mihailo Dimitrievsky, but I think he goes by the Miko in, in board game environment, yes. So, um, he's yeah, the artist, that, yeah. and um, so this is this was developed by Johnny Pack, which I think is interesting. I didn't, I don't think I knew that. Um, and it is a game that is set in North America from 10,000 BCE. Yes, I think it's set in North America. It's interesting. <laughs> it's basically set in the Ice Age because obviously that tends to be uniform. I guess, I don't know, maybe some of the animals are more targeted to North America. It's it's very much a Euro um, and it's one of those with a lot of different things. So to try and give a quick overview, we will always obviously have to, to, to cut a, a lot, but to give a general idea and then we can try to talk about the general feeling of the game. On your turn, each round of the game and there are four rounds of the game you take three turns and in each three turns you choose one of four actions plus one rest action then with the, the expansion they can be five actions so a certain menu of actions mm-hmm. where each of these is basically a sub menu you go there you spend a certain amount of labor resources from cards in your hand and you can get different things one action is to get more cards that build your deck but also that you can use immediately that's interesting you go there you you gain new cards to use in the same round if you want um then there is one that gives you a map control things that will provide you bonuses every round as long as you have majorities in certain points uh there is one that lets you um, build uh, sorry buy basically cards that do not interact with the action but they simply give you resources and one that lets you collect sets of animals that give you points. And for each of these actions, there are basic action, one special action, and then one bonus only for the first player to be there. 
and all of these have this little menu different costs you pay with food you pay with tools which are managed on tracks that can be maxed there are a lot of things like that but you basically try to get points by killing the animals by controlling the map and by basically getting score conditions. And it's one of those games where the more you do, the more pieces move away from your player board and thus provide you income and you you spiral out. The first round is relatively simple. The fourth is long and you can constantly do more stuff. Um, so this is very short uh, terms, the, the mechanism of the game. So there is a little bit of that building uh, well, no, there is quite a bit of deck building, but it's interesting that you take, you have a hand of five cards for each round, which can grow because you can get cards in your hand directly. But so you have to decide how many of those cards do I want to use on each of the three turns inside the round. Anything else that you think it's important to get a feeling of the game? No, I think you, I think you summarize it pretty well. The, so that it's a Euro style game that combines, you know, worker placement and deck building. And I think those are the two main things that you have to consider when you're playing this game. And so would you th- say that that's the, the one thing that makes it or break it? So I'm thinking in terms of, I, I can spoiler that part. I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. But do you think that's the main hook, the main thing that will determine whether someone likes it or not? Or what do you think is is when you came a- away from it or when someone you, you see someone going at it, what do you think will be the, the crucial part of the game? I think the the most crucial part for me was that there are so many different viable paths to getting points. There are tracks to focus on. There are, there are animals to collect. There are cards to put into your deck, which are um, in the form of, you know, other tribes, people. Um, So there's so many different ways to go about that. And I think that that really stuck with me. Yeah, I think that, that that's an excellent point. The fact that the resources are used, I think, in in a variety of ways. There are only two resources, the tools and the food. And they're not used in a particularly smart or different way. Simply, you, you spend them to do things, right? It's, it's a cost for actions. But the fact that your action economy, the labor points are also part of it, and the cards, and you can choose which cards to focus on. Not only each card is going to be stronger for one action or the other, but also there are cards that you can use, and the more you want to use, the more you want to discard other cards. So the cards become a resource rather than the the main focus of the deck building, because I wasn't that almost never thinking, oh, now I need to cycle through my deck to get to that card again. It was more, let's see what I draw and what I can do with what I get, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Um, so you mentioned it already, but uh, theme and components. What what do you think of that? So, um, I mean, I have the deluxe version. For once, me too. <laughs> so um, I really like all of the deluxe 
components. I think that they're very well made. I think that they are very nice. My friend Dan has the regular version. He said that he said that his components are also very nice. So I think um, that that was smart of them to make equal quality, just different, you know, the more deluxified versions of them. Um, I, for the theme for me, I've played other, like, like Paleo, I've played that game and it, I'm not really like excited about it. I'm not really like that. That is not what drew me to the game. I agree. I actually think it, it's a kind of thing that actually I, I don't mind. Uh, I think it's fine because again, I think it's a Euro, so I don't expect any kind of deep, deep uh, thematic connection. I think that for something that is visually so peculiar, right? They have the mammoth and they have the saber tooth tiger and they have the, the shaman and the tent. Uh, but there are some major, I think, thematic disconnects. For example, the fact that you are hunting animals to collect them, but you lose points and gain other stuff if you kill them. That's one first very strange thing. You are basically not hunting the animals. You are capturing them for your menagerie, which is definitely <laughs> not a prehistoric kind of approach. But the main thing was that the way the map works is very much feudal expansion and control rather than migration, right? which is what would be... There is no sense of or finding more fertile lands or well for fertile more more so there are That's a few what I see. yeah exactly <laughs> it's a weird thing to choose such a specific theme to then go in a direction that in in multiple ways i think is not very thematic but at the same time it is at least a little different as you said it's not the first one uh, sapiens had this well, it wasn't Ice Age, but it was still prehistoric times, paleo. Yep. Um, but at least I think it allowed for, for example, a different um, D'Amico kind of style because more medieval stuff from him. We have all see, seen all of the West Kingdom already and we have seen the Viking ones and we have seen the Valyria ones. So this at least is starkly different. The white everywhere is is interesting. So I think I like the the visual of the components. The theme for me not only wasn't a plus, I think it's maybe a, a weakness, especially compared to other Euros that use deck builder, for example, Arnak. I think the theme there is very interesting. Um but but it wasn't bad. I and the components are I think spectacular. I think yes. they are very, very um good. here is a uh hot take do you think maybe they went to the miko and said what kind of art would you like to draw maybe uh it could be um i strongly suspect that uh when this game was designed it wasn't even in their mind to be a, a, a prehistoric theme mm -hmm. again especially that map that map is definitely moving from a center place and expanding and getting your strongholds right. the fact that 
build a big tent and therefore you have control over territory. <laughs> um, so it might be. Um, and I, I think that like Yanotul um, is such a, a polarizing and famous artist now that I think it's not necessarily a bad idea, right? Going to one of them and saying, well, we want to give you complete artistic control. Mm-hmm. Let's discuss a theme that you are excited about working on and that we can still work with our with our game. So that might might be it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I, I care the most about in a game, and I know it's very important to you, pace and dark. What what do you think of that? Well, I think you already briefly touched on it um, being like in the beginning, you have very slow turns and very not slow. You have very unexciting turns in the beginning because you have very limited resources. You basically are going to the places, well, especially in a two player game, you're going to the places where the other person did not to get those first their bonuses and so it kind of feels like, oh, I'm just doing this. Oh, and we get three actions. Oh, and it is over in four rounds. So it's it feels like you're not going to be able to do everything that you want to do. But by the end, you are definitely, you know, having so many more resources and so many more options and even if the person goes there, you still need to go there because you have to spend the tools or whatever it is and uh, get the last things that you need to score points or to move up on the track to get, you know, to make certain things score better for yourself at the end. So I think that the the pace is good. I don't feel like it's very doing the same thing over and over, even though there are limited actions. Um and I do like the eclipse phases. I thought that those were super interesting. Um, how you can hold back the cards to use them at that time. Um, yeah, I think that's co- very important. I think that's also innovative. The eclipse phases, which are basically... It's the cleanup phase at the end of the round, in a way. Yeah. Which is normally a very mechanical thing. Okay, let's slide the card and refresh this. And there is that. The cards get flipped and all of that. But players do gain a lot of stuff during, or, or potentially can gain a lot of stuff during that. And I think that's very innovative. And that helps with, with the, okay, I'm done with my round, but now I can think about this while you go with your turn and then we reveal and we all do things. I do do really think, as you were saying, that there is a big arc. And by the end, you are not only able to do different things, but also you want to do different things because... Cards, for example, maybe in the last round, you don't want to get new cards. And vice versa, you're hunting for the animals to complete your sets. And maybe the leftover idols or whatever monolith, which we never even touch, is basically a secondary action that you don't have a, a specific action placement for that, but you can gain it from different sources. And there is a little map where you place these things to get bonuses and score. And so you're doing different things. I think at the end it might even get a little bloated. With two, it wasn't too much of a problem. But I could see the last round with three or four players getting really, really bogged down because Mm -hmm. everyone has a lot to do, 
but also a lot to calculate because now you go from having five cards to having drawn maybe eight or nine. And so, oh, I could use five year, two year, and two year. I could start with three year again. And so I could see that bogging down a little bit, but again, I'm kind of nitpicking, right? It's a game that I think works very well. Uh The pace does slow down. Uh, At first is I go here, do this, do this to you. At the end is, even if I know exactly what I want to do, is okay, I'll go here, I pay this, 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 and this to gain this many things. I flip these three cards, I get this one, this activates that. And especially if you want to be involved in what other people are doing, there is a lot to wait and follow before it's your turn. But again, that's a good price to pay, I think, for something that blossoms and balloons into a lot of of activity. Sure, Um, and I think even on, like you mentioned, I think even not on your turn, on other players' turns. I think you're still interested in what they're doing because they could be putting out more animals that that could be there for you that maybe you need. Or I, There's a lot of not direct interaction, I wouldn't say, um, other than like the area control portion. I would say that there are ways that you can indirectly interact with other players i absolutely agree and i think that that comes from the fact that there are so many different things that you can do that is very hard to be blocked completely mm-hmm. um and which also leads me to in terms of strategy and replayability you must do a little bit of everything but you can definitely focus on something or at least some focus on something earlier than someone else. Like maybe I'll go monolith while you're going up the tracks, or maybe I will get a lot of cards of the ones that I can play while you will get a lot of cards of the ones that generate you resources, which I think makes it at least interesting to replay to try different strategies. But I do think that it's going to be one of those games where there is enough variety, even without going into the expansions and there is a lot of stuff in the expansions but even without that i think that is a game where based on how the cards come up in your hand and what you buy is going to be different every time you play it so i i don't see getting tired of the variety i think i will also like the game and i will keep playing it but if i get tired of it it will not be because it feels always the same it might be that it ends up being too long with too many players. Again, I have played it only a few times, but that's 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 something that is important to me. Did you play with the rest variant? Yes, yes. We we from the very first game we put in both the glaciers, which doesn't do that much, mm-hmm. and the rest, which I think is makes the rest action potentially valuable. Right. I don't think I would ever do it otherwise. While with that is that tiny bit, basically the rest action is you gain stuff for the Eclipse for winning basically turn order and the bonus, and you get a little thing. With the rest variant, the first player to to, to rest uh, in the round also gets an additional bonus. So it's not a big thing. It doesn't change drastically your position, but it makes it a little bit of incentive to say, Okay, if I want to do this, I want to do it now. And so it, it it's a little more stimulating, I think. Yeah, it feels like it's more of a choice than a throwaway action. Exactly. Um, so we we touch upon it. Um, I 
didn't know the the designer at all. We have mentioned the artist. You, you like the Miko, right? I, I do at least, but I think you yes. like him. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So Stan Kordonsky, is that the... F- no, it's not his first game at all, actually. Um, he did a lot of things that I have. I have played Dice Hospital once, I think. Um, I have never played... Uh, what is called? Um, I've played Rurik. Rurik. Rurik, yeah, I know you have played it. Mm-hmm. Um, how does it compare? Do you, do you see any design connection between this and Rurik? Um, maybe the area control part. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more, it's, it's very different, but it's, I think there was also hexes and like getting resources from the hexes. So that was kind of similar. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I've played I think anything that- else. That Endless Winter is it is it has a few things that are very classic. Like for all how it presents it, it, it is basically a, a weak worker placement mechanism. Not not weak in the sense that it doesn't work, but in the sense that it's not a strict worker placement because you can still go to an action that has already been taken. It's just that you you have a first come, first served bonus, basically. It has been compared a lot in terms of what what we could uh, relate it to to the other two games that combine um, deck building and worker placement, uh, Lost Ruins of Arnak and uh, Dune Imperium. To be fair, I have heard this comparison mostly before Endless Winter came out. I don't see any relation between between the three. I think that already the comparison between Arnak and Dune Imperium are a little weak. Once we get into Endless Winter, I mean, sure, you technically go to a place using a card, but I see them as drastically different. What was your experience? Did you see see that that connection or no? I don't think that they're even remotely close to each other. I mean, if yeah. you if you want to like boil it down to like the very very bare connection, like sure, there's tracks that you need to go up, but in Arnak you're paying resources to go up on those tracks versus just getting movement on tracks. Yeah. There's two main resources, kind yeah. of. I think I also think that the what makes it drastically different from those is that the cards don't feel like cards. <laughs> what I mean is that the cards are strictly speaking resources. They don't do things. Mm-hmm. There is no way the cards, I mean there are ways, but cards don't let you draw more cards. Cards don't let you uh, I don't know go fetch a card from your discard pile or <laughs> Uh, steal something from another player or move your token from place A to place B. Cards are basically a resource that you cannot guarantee you will have. That's all there is. It could be a bag of resources and it would be functionally the same, which is very different from how those other games use use deck building. To the point that, yes, is strictly speaking a deck building. Obviously, you buy cards, they end up in your deck, you shuffle them up and you draw them again. So it's a deck building true and true on that. But I think that if someone is really looking for a deck building, 
not just the deck builder, but the deck building experience in a game, I don't think that that is provided. That even the, the kind of cards there are five cards that the only difference is what action do they work better with. There are like there are no special texts. There are no ten or fifteen cards that you can buy, um, and so I think that that's what makes it at the same time new because it uses this to to provide different strength to the actions but also in a way it's more of a classic worker placement than the other games i, mm-hmm. I feel it okay um so what's your final take on on endless winter i think it's a really good game i think it is something that if you haven't checked out definitely try it i don't know that it's going to be for everyone um because i know people that don't particularly like like area control portions and i feel like that might be one of the areas of the game that you can't really ignore because you can't like just let someone sort of have free reign over getting free resources every turn um So if you don't like area control, I would say this is probably not the game for you because you need to have a handle on that. But as far as everything else, there are a lot of avenues to make points through, like we said, through set collection and and different things. So I think it's a good game. I think it's very interesting. And I think that people should try it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I really like it. It's going to stay in our collection for sure. I think it's one of those games where it's weird because I like it a lot, but maybe I don't like it as much as the giant hype uh, that is came came with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I, I really genuinely like it. It's just that at one point it was the first on on the BGG hotness for a while, and it seemed like it was the new advent of new games. I'm excited to try the expansions. I read through the rules. The one that in particular expands the map with the river and makes the map more dynamic, I think is going to be the most interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I am very happy to have it. You have all the expansions? Um, yes, yes, everything that, that they... The only thing I didn't get, because as you know, I don't like that much, is uh, the, the playmat, mm-hmm. which in this case in particular, having the boards able to to stack them on the table as you need speaking of table hogs like you said yes. last, last time uh it was useful um but yeah i i'm happy with it and i look forward to playing it again yeah surprise i do have the play map not shocked <laughs> so yeah that was endless winter so the nice thing that uh, I found in receiving Kickstarter, which, as I said, uh, slowed down a bit, uh, I, I slowed down my, my purchasing uh, habits, was that because they were getting to my sister every time, because when I moved, I, I knew that address. I didn't know where I would be. From time to time, Martha would go, oh, something got here. And I didn't know if it was, I don't know, a letter from the bank that I needed to address. <laughs> <laughs> I think that my or the packs that I was waiting for, but I didn't have any tracking number or anything. So 
one of the things that made me think of our theme for today was specifically the fact that when I my sister showed up with this giant box, it was like it was my birthday again or, or Christmas, even if I had bought it for me. And so that's why I wanted today for us to talk about games as gifts, um, or at least gift giving, giving gifts, um, and receiving gifts, which is not not bad either. Uh, so I, it's a little less structured that uh, that our teams el- at other times, especially when we're discussing specific type of games, like when we did our worker placement or our, uh, I don't know, area control uh, uh, sessions. But I felt that it was appropriate for the season. I don't know what we're going to say about it, but yes. So why don't we move into our final section of the podcast, which is, again, the, the season of Christmas, which obviously can be important for many different reasons, but in gaming terms is also the season for gifts. So uh, how do you feel about the connection between games and gifts? So I was going to say that if you have a gamer friend in your life, you should be very careful about what you purchase them for many reasons. A, do they already own this game? B, is it a kind of game that they will like? Because there are, believe it or not, there are a lot of bad games out there. Oh, I do believe that. And believe it or not, I own some of those bad games. Oh, no, you own most of those bad games. (laughs) You own them at some point. Yes, I own them at some point, and then they uh, mysteriously vanish. But so those are the the, the things that I would like to say about about gaming. I think um, as someone who has games that they don't really see play a lot um you know whether it be because i can't really get that player count to the table or you know what have you i want my games to be used and so i want people to have them that will play them um obviously i'm not going to go around shoving bad games onto people but like games that i enjoy but maybe just don't get to the table as often. Um, I'm happy to give as gifts to other gamer friends. Um, so I think that, you know, not everything has to be new. You know, I don't think every every gift has to be unused or whatever. So I think that, that that's a connection there with, with gaming and, and gifting. Yeah, and I actually really like that. Um, we used to do that at the uh, Jackie Con. Mm-hmm. Every year we'd have some of the games that we we didn't want anymore. And so we would put them in a pile and making it clear that some of them were just games that were bad. There were some that were, and we would tell them, well, you know, that's, that's a bad game, right? <laughs> and some of our friends really want to try everything, including bad games. Dan, for example, actually seems to have a pleasure in finding a bad game to try. Um, but uh, others were simply games where this is too similar to something else, mm-hmm. or this is an older version of a game that either got a straight-up reprint or just a, a, a similar game that is newer. And it was nice to 
we don't always did that, right? We didn't always do that. Sometimes we were uh, trading them or selling them. But it was nice sometimes to know, okay, this game that to me is not going to be played anymore, as you were saying, it's not going to give me joy, not because it's bad, but because I have something else in the same category. But now, especially for friends, we didn't see often that maybe at the smaller co co collections, I can teach you this game, we can play it, and then you can take it home. Um, for me, that's, that's always nice when you get to teach a game and then gift it. Um, I do it only with small games, but there are certain games of which I still, uh, and now they will come here, we buy them basically in bulk every time you find them cheap at uh, flea markets, at trades, at uh, conventions. We always have multiple copies of Hanabi, Love Letter, Code Names, and there is another one, the Grizzle. And sometimes we get something else because it's it's a good way to... There are games that are cheap enough that I can uh, give them without A, breaking the bank, but also without embarrassing someone, right? If, if, you, if the first time you play something with someone and it's Blood Rage and you go, oh, by the way, take Blood Rage, they might be a little hesitant if you play <laughs> Love Letter, which is a 15-card game. It's right. nice to say, well, you like it. We have multiple copies. Here you go. Um, and that's very nice because it's a way to to share your joy for a specific game and not just for gaming in general. Um, and that's particularly good when you can do that with someone who's not particularly into gaming. But I have done it also with friends who, who like to game. It's it's always nice when they go, oh, okay, wait, uh, I, I will order it on Amazon. No, 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 wait, we have a copy that it's... The game is maybe 15 bucks on Amazon, but we bought it for three, right? And you have it there and it just, just pick this copy and it's nice. Um, going back to what you were saying before about finding a game for for a gamer, I actually really like gifting games. Obviously, I like games and I think they are a, a joyful item, but I find it very difficult because, as you said, with gamers, it's tricky. Often, gamers like to buy a game that they know they will like and so they might have it already and if they haven't bought it or if they haven't heard of it it might be that it's out of their wheelhouse or that they looked at it and decided not to get it and mm -hmm. usually that but vice versa at the opposite end of the spectrum there is the the person who's not a gamer and you don't want to that's a general rule for me in, in gift giving i don't want to give the thing that i would want to receive I want to give something that that person would want to receive. Right. So beside the complexity, without everything, anything even going into the how the game plays, to me, the new Tashini game, before I even know what it is, is an exciting moment. For someone who doesn't play board games, that's just a weird item that they don't know what to do with <laughs> beside the complexity of the rules. Right? And so that leaves the in-between, the person who plays hobby games, but who's not really the main collector, main aficionado of, of their group. But usually those people tend to play with the people who are really into it. And so even with them, it's a delicate balance of, will I give them a game that then to play, they will still have to compete with all of the games of our game group, etc. And so I find that this thing that I really care about, it's also very difficult for me to make gifts of. Mm -hmm. Um, so what are some games that you feel like are 
good games to give for non-gamer friends. You so you said Hanabi and Love Letter. So do you think that those are good for gamers and non-gamers or do you think maybe Hanabi would be more geared toward people with a gaming mindset? No, I think that especially if you have a chance to explain it to them, not because the rules are complicated, um, because they're not, but to give them a sense of, for example, it's a cooperative game, which is something that technically makes the games generally easier to approach, but it is almost unheard of in non-hobby games, right? So uh, if you have the chance to, to, to introduce them to the game, both games go very well, and it's interesting because you can give them a taste of games that are definitely manageable. You can They are short. You can play them without having to focus and be silent and be, well, you need to be silent in Anabi about the game, but you can do whatever you want in meanwhile. But at the same time, they are not just, oh, this is a better version of a party game, right? Or this is a, a little more clever party game. It, there are very simple forms of the kind of games that are in the hobby. And I really think that is it's interesting. And even games like Love Letter, uh, to us, or at least to, to, to people who play much more complex things, are, well, this is still decent, but quick. It can be really the right the right place for someone who wants, who's interested in games. Maybe they like the idea of games, but they have not the inclination, the time, or the interest in getting into all of the other complex things. So not in terms of, oh, now you give them love letter because you know that next birthday you can give them a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. (laughs) Love letter can be a very easy game to play uh, that can be very fun. The downside is that you can get stuck in playing love letter forever. When we first (laughs) found it and brought it to Italy and gifted it to a couple of friends, when we came back the next year, we spent the entire night playing Love Letter and Mamma Mia, an old Uwe Rosenberg game. I think we played like 30 games of it, and it was nightmarish. But no <laughs> successes. I think that yes, um, Code Names is again a game that always goes well. It's also a more traditional party game, which, as we were saying before, nothing wrong with it. But I think it's a little less interesting for me to gift. Uh, I it is definitely the one that I have gifted the most because it's so often that someone tries it and likes it because it's a party game, so you get to play it more often. But also, it's it's a, it's a war game, right? I think it's the best in its category, in its category. But Love Letter, Hanabi, Guizzold are different. They, you are introducing people to something that is not just a very refined example but it's something different from what they know. Mm -hmm. Um, So some games that I've gifted to people um, are Abandon All Artichokes. Have you played that? I played once. It was nice. Yeah. Do you you gift that to people who don't play many games? Um, No, I gave it to someone who who plays games. Um, But... It I, f- I feel like that game could be played by non-gamers, too. Um, it's pretty straightforward. The cards just do what they say. And if you... I mean, it has some terms, like like trash the card, that might be... You, you know, you would have to explain to a non-gamer person. But 
overall, I think it would be a pretty easily accessible game to non-gamers. Um, the other game uh, that I actually convinced my friend who plays games with me sometimes to give her boyfriend was Biblios. Yeah, I have gifted a couple of Biblios over the years. I think that's another very good, very good uh, choice. Yes. Um, so yeah, those are are some other ones. I gave my mom a copy of Splendor. She just really, really liked it. So, um, we played we played that a few times. So. Yeah, I think there are a lot of games. And now, you know, the hobby gaming has really found its way into the, the mass marketing stores, like, or the, the, you know, the bigger stores. You don't have to go to a, you know, specific gaming only store to find these games. You can go to Target and find, you know, planted on the shelf or terraforming mars or you know all splendor whatever you can find all of these different kinds of hobby games on the shelf so i think they've become a lot more accessible to give people as gifts so yeah I and think... i also think it's it's nice that um there are a lot of relative sim relatively, relatively simple but still very good ip based games so things like Horrified or uh, Jaws or things like that that are strictly connected to the movie, but they're also nice. Um, that's a, a very nice gift. If you know that your friend uh, likes horror games, you are probably not going to give them abomination until they are really into Euros, right? <laughs> but you could give them um, Horrified and horrified, maybe if someone has never played the modern mortgage before, is a tad complicated, but you can definitely walk them through and then they can play it whenever they want. Um, and the same with Jaws. So the presence of those games, and now there is E.T. and there is uh, there is even a Fast and Furious game and, th- and things like that, which they are good enough that uh, you know that they're not giving them a box of plastic with an image stamped on it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's different than it used to be. Um, and they're also not targeted just to children because I'm sure that there have been other Jaws games in which you were probably moving the shark around and rolling to see if you could reach the swimmer or something. Um, and so the fact that there are so many games that are driven by their team, but they're still quite good and quite accessible also makes gift giving simpler. Um, with the main rule that must be remember that not everyone likes games. Um, what? What? I only ever gifted my father one game, Timeline, and only because he had seen us play and express interest. Because my father doesn't play games. He played with us a little bit growing up, mostly cards, but he was never into it because he gets very competitive. And so early on, he decided that he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't play games at, at all. And so... <laughs> All these many years, the one thing that I once got for him was um, timeline, which is nice. I like it, but I like that uh, his 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 and his friends' comments were, "Who would have thought that games could do this?" And I was like, 
that's a very straightforward thing, right? <laughs> I mean, there is a lot more that games can do, but it was it was nice. Um, I think that that's the risk, though, right? The risk of deciding that because we and anyone who's listening to this obviously care, we care about games much more than than the average human being. Therefore, forgetting that is is a hobby, and like I wouldn't want my rock climbing friend to give me rock climbing materials for Christmas because I don't rock climb because I'm terrified. Uh, <laughs> would be the fact that we do it and that people know that we play these things doesn't mean that everyone is interested. Doesn't mean that everyone is willing to find the game for them. I do think that there is a game for everyone, but not everyone necessarily wants to go through the, the process of trying to find it. Mm-hmm. I agree. So if you are thinking of getting a game for one of your hobby friends, maybe get them a gift card. <laughs> yeah. And as you, you, as you were saying, a gift card to a play, again, it, it, it used to be the case that if you wanted, you had to give them a, a gift card. I don't know for the Fantasy Flight website or for right. I don't know uh, Aragorn gifts and games or whatever very nerdy store you would find games in. Now you could give them I don't know a Target gift star, gift card and say, and if you want, I can come with you to to pick a game, right? Something like that. So if they don't, they go and they pick their giant turkey for for the next Thanksgiving. I don't know. They use it how they want, but it's a nice way to say, you know, we could get one, but it's up to you and you can do, you do you. Um, I actually realized that even, I mean, I like receiving games and when I do receive them, it's nice, but it that's one thing that has changed with me getting more and more into the hobby. It used to be when I was first discovering games that, I was hoping that my parents or my friends or my girlfriend would get me a game. And I was very, very happy and very expecting when it happened. Now it's nice, especially when someone knows games can pick a game and I end up liking it. But I'm fine if I don't, right? I buy games on my own. So if I receive a book and some chocolate and a weird item that someone thought of for me it's fine games will come games will arrive um and so it, it's a strange it's a strange feeling because obviously i remember when receiving a board game or before that there were role-playing materials uh it was oh i really hope that someone gets me that um now is do i wait until christmas to get the stuff that i want <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of things constantly arriving, uh, til- Tilatum, Tiletum mm-hmm. arrived for me today. So, oh, so I look forward to reviewing that with you. And I, again, <laughs> I, I haven't played it since since we spoke, but I still, I don't have a hat, so I will not eat my hat if if I'm wrong. Um, but I, I, I'm quite positive you will like it. Hooray. <laughs> All right. So I think that that pretty much wraps up our episode for the day. I see what you did there. Yeah. Wrap up. Yeah. Like a gift. Like a gift. We wrapped it up. 
So thank you for listening. Again, please like, share, comment. Um, I did put a poll on our last Spotify uh, episode. So um, I look forward to checking that and seeing if people answered. If not, you can definitely look for a poll to be attached to this episode. Uh, since I didn't mention it last time. <laughs> uh, but. Uh, Thank you for listening, and uh, signing out is me, Nathan. And I will give Nathan and everybody the gift of shutting up. Um, But (laughs) thank you, Nathan. Uh, Everyone, happy holidays, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.